Before I get into the teaching this morning, I want to share something with you. We all know by now that our mainstream media don't tell us everything and often only tell us what what they think we should hear, directing our minds in whatever direction they feel is uh, appropriate. We may not have heard recently of the... Uh, of the pretty striking increase of anti-Semitism going on in France at the current time. It's a man by the name of Alfred Dreyfus. Some of you have heard of Alfred Dreyfus. He was a, a Jewish man living in the late 1800s. And charges were brought against him, trumped up charges, they weren't true. Primarily because he was Jewish, he was dragged to the city square in Paris his hat was torn in front of a, a mob. His beard was plucked out. He was made a spectacle because he was a Jew. Standing there in the crowd that day watching what happened to Alfred Dreyfus was a man by the name of Theodore Herzl, who we now know is the father of modern Zionism. He is the one who stirred up the Jewish people, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, calling them together from all over the world for the first Zionist conference in Switzerland and they met and it started the ball rolling in the late 1800s to Jewish people returning to the land as the Bible declared that they would. All because of what was seen with this man Alfred Dreyfus. Well, this last month in Paris, the longtime statue that was erected there in honor of Alfred Dreyfus was spray painted with the words filthy Jew. That's just the tip of the iceberg as to what's going on there and the brutality that is being experienced by Jews there. Synagogues are being firebombed. Have you heard that in the news recently? People putting together Molotov cocktails to throw at, uh, at synagogues and uh, Jews being randomly beaten up in the streets. And they're saying right now that the level of anti-Semitism in France is worse than it was at the end of the 30s in the run-up to the Holocaust. And I just tell you that to say, be in prayer for the people of Israel. And be aware as to what's going on. It is yet another the sign of the times in which we live and the tragedies of things that we're seeing. There are over 500,000 Muslims living now in France and about, no, I'm sorry, not 500,000, 5 million Muslims in France and there are 600,000 Jews. And uh, what's going on there is, is pretty terrifying. I just received an email about this uh, just this last week. So I want you to be aware of that. I'd like to um, just take a moment and, and pray for the people of Israel if we can. Father, as your word declares and calls us to, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pay, pray, Father, for the everlasting kingdom peace that we know will come when Jesus comes. We know it's only through Jesus that your city, Lord, will ever experience peace again. We know, Father, that the, the depth of, of hatred runs all the way back. All the way back to Jacob and Esau. Running back to Isaac and, and Ishmael. We know, Father, this is a deep-seated, everlasting enmity. And we pray, Father, for peace. And we pray for restoration. And we pray, as Paul talked about, that the two men will become one. As we have been grafted in and adopted as sons and daughters, 
We pray for that, for that unity of peace. Lord, we pray for, for Jew and Muslim alike. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll come quickly. And once again, restore your people. Lord, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the time we have together to be in your word. And to learn and to understand better these things. We pray, Father, as we study, that we do so with the, with the guidance of your Holy Spirit. That we truly are listening. Lord, we say, we're the whole realm of nature mind. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my life and my soul and my all. And Father, I ask that you will teach us what that means in each of our lives today. What it truly means to follow Jesus, knowing of the demand on my life and my soul and my all. The demand of grace. That compelling act of Jesus on the cross, your amazing love poured out, poured out before we asked for it, poured out before we chose you. You chose us, Father. And we pray that that will compel us to live lives of faith. I ask this morning, Father, that you will increase our faith. Each of us individually, that we would think about in our own lives the things that we're doing, the choices we're making, and we will apply faith. And we will live by faith. That we will not be trapped in religion or tradition, Father. That we will not be trapped by our sin nature. But, Father, all that could be cleared away and we could truly be a people who are living by faith. Teach us how to speak, Lord, the language of faith. To hear it with ears of faith. Increase our faith, Father. We believe. Help our unbelief. The Holy Spirit, teach us of all these things this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how are you with names? Are you the type of person who remembers names really well? You know, someone introduces themselves and, and the next week you see them, you know who they are. How many of you know my name? Let me just get a show of hands. That's, that's pretty good. Some of you are like... Do you remember names? From the moment you meet them, or are you, like me, more prone to forget almost instantaneously? Hello, my name is John Smith. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm sorry, what's your name? (laughs) And I find it's interesting at the bridge, it was real easy at first. When there was like 20 of us, I knew everybody's name. And now, you you just got to forgive me if I I look at you with that blank expression on my face and I call you partner. (laughs) You know? How you doing, buckaroo? (laughs) You know? I had a professor in college, professor of Old Testament, named Dr. John Willis, who was an amazing, amazing teacher, an amazing man. And he would stand at the doorway of every one of his classes at the beginning of the semester. And you had to line up down the hall and walk in. And he would look you in the eye and say your name. And he did that every day for about two weeks. And from that point, for the rest of the four years that I was in that college, he knew my name. He was known around the campus for knowing every name of every student who had ever taken a course under his teaching. Pretty impressive. 
Well, I've become to realize that the um, book of 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, is full of so many names that many of us are going, I don't know who is who, or when is who, or what they're doing, or what's attached to what king, or what. So, we have a list of names. And you can pick this up in the back. It's on the back table by the green box back there. And uh, if we run out, I'll make more. Maybe I'll just email it out. But it's a list of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Going all the way down. 19, or 19 kings of Israel, 20 kings of Judah, all their names, when they reigned, the dates, actual dates of when they reigned, how long they reigned, and the type of their reign, which is indicated by a little happy face or a little frowny face. So, so you can just look at it and go, okay, he didn't do so well. He didn't do so well. And you might notice when I hold this up, the kings of Israel are here on the left, and, and the, the little black squares are the frowny faces. So you can see how the kings of Israel did. Not too good. You look over at the kings of Judah, and you have about 7 out of 20 that, that were good kings. And that's even allowing for some, some of the sin nature to be at work there. So anyway, this is available for you in the back, and you can follow it. It's, it's actually very helpful. Uh, there's also a space there where you can write in the, the passage or the, the chapter where their story is told. And you might want to grab one of those, fold it up, tuck it in your Bible. That's what it's there for. But this, this story of Israel in First and Second Kings is, is difficult to follow. It's the story of an entire people. And what happened to this people as the kingdom divided. You know it started out with Saul. King Saul, people say, give us a king like the nations. And so the Lord gave them a king like the nations in Saul. And then after Saul comes along David, who I believe, and I've shared before, I believe David was God's choice. In fact, I believe had the people waited Patiently, the Lord would have given them David at the appropriate time. You see, the line of Judah, through which David was born, had a curse on it that had to run its course. And it ran its course right up to the last person before David was born. And when David was born, the time for that curse, biblically speaking, had been lifted. And David was perfect to step right into it. And David was a great king. Even given his great fall with Bathsheba, he was a great king because he loved God. He just loved the Lord. You see, that's what God is looking for. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for passionate people. He's looking for sons and daughters who will love Him. Just love Him for who He is. And want to worship Him. And He knows we're going to mess up because that's what we are. We are mess-ups. We are sinners. But if you're in Jesus Christ, you are a saved sinner... And you are entered into a royal priesthood. It's an amazing dichotomy, is it not? That, that we can stand up and praise the Lord and, and say, Hallelujah, I am a saved, clean, righteous person in the eyes of God. But know in my heart, I still have all these struggles and difficulties and, and sins in my life. Well, after David came Solomon. Solomon was the glory days of Israel. At their height of, of richness and, and, and wealth and, and territory. And everything was great under Solomon to a degree, except that Solomon began to chase after his wives' idols. He had so many wives and he had so many idols, the pressure just became unbearable for him. And he gave in. And at the end of his life, we don't know if Solomon ended up a saved man or not. A, a man of faith or not. After Solomon came his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom. Rehoboam was heavy handed with the people. And so they said, forget it. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And God said, yeah, that's right. I'm going to take away the kingdom from Rehoboam. Except I will leave him one tribe. I'll leave him Judah. And so Judah became a nation in the south under Rehoboam. And the reason God kept Judah was because he made a promise to David. 
I will keep a lamp in Jerusalem. Through the line of Judah, I will keep that lamp burning because of my servant David. A lamp that will burn all the way to Jesus Christ. But in the north, the ten northern tribes would gather around Jeroboam. Jeroboam's name throughout, first and, well, throughout Second Kings is repeated again and again and again as the example of idol worship. He was so wicked and so evil in that he led all the people to provoke God in their worship of idols. And every king following Jeroboam, Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Joash, which is where we are this morning, all these kings following after Jeroboam. It's easy to say the list when you've got it right in front of you. It's easy just to run down it. I encourage you to pick up that list and consider it though because as we think about these kings, we recognize one thing. No human being can handle the authority that is necessary to rule over other human beings. There is no king that could possibly be perfect save one. Save one. The reason why, by the way, we've been moving at such a rapid pace, and I have just been really pushing, especially on Wednesday nights. If you've been coming Wednesday nights, first of all, thank you for sticking with me, for hanging in there. We had three chapters, an hour and a half of teaching on this last Wednesday night. And I know, I know what I'm asking of you to sit there and listen to Rick drone on, but I'm pushing us at a rapid pace to get through 2 Kings because I can't wait for where I believe the Lord wants us to go in the fall. And that's the book of Matthew, where we learn of the kingdom authority of Jesus Christ. Now you'll find it interesting, because of the four Gospels, and we're just going to do Matthew, and then we'll come back to the Old Testament and continue on. But it's time for a Gospel. It's time for some good news. After going through all these kings, man, I need good news. And the Gospel of Matthew, more than the other three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's focus is the kingliness, the royalness, of Jesus. It's his authority. In fact, the gospel ends this way, Matthew 28:18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our great King Jesus, the only King who could ever possibly rule righteously, and he will. He will. He is coming back to do so. Now, Wednesday night, we talked about two kings and a queen. We talked about the king Jehu in Israel. King over Israel who served as a harsh tool of God's judgment. Eradicating the house of Ahab, just as God said would happen. And eradicating Baal worship. He was the only, only king in Israel ever to wipe out Baal worship. Good for you, Jehu. Way to go. Until he returns then to the sins of Jeroboam. It's unbelievable. He, he wipes out the idol worship of Baal, and then he turns around and worships the golden calf set up in Dan in Bethel. Because Jehu doesn't get it. You don't just get rid of the bad. You replace the bad with that which is good. And he never did that. He wiped out the bad, and he stayed right in it. Well, then, down in Judah, a wicked queen arose. The only queen among any of the rulers of Israel or Judah, a woman by the name of Atalia... She was a wicked queen, daughter of Jezebel, so she was like her mother. Both of them, wicked witches of the north. She massacred her own grandchildren just so that she could stay in power. Those of you grandmothers, can you even imagine? I don't care how disobedient they are when they come to visit. Natalia massacred all of them, but she missed one. 
a little boy who was tucked away, an infant named Joash. Joash was hidden away in the temple for six years, and Atalia never knew it. Why? Because she never went to the temple. <laughs> she was vacant, absent from there. And so little Joash grew up in the temple for six years, and at the age of seven, they brought him out and anointed him king. Atalia is murdered. I mean, the stories of murder and intrigue throughout the book of 2 Kings are absolutely amazing. And Joash goes on to reign for 40 years in Jerusalem. He grew up a good king. And I find myself reading, and when the kings are doing good things, I'm cheering all the way. Go, Joash! Go, go, go Joash! <laughs> Yay, Joash, you know. I want him to be good, because so few are. And he's mostly good. I mean, having grown up in the temple, Joash had a great love for the temple, and he saw to the restoration of the temple. You see, in Joash's life, the temple was 140 years old. And by then needed some restoration. Not to mention the fact that Italia, the wicked queen, and her sons had wiped out many important parts of the temple. Her sons had gone in, Second Chronicles 24 tells us, and done great damage and ripped off things from the temple. So it needed some restoration. And Joash, bless his heart, he took care of that. He grew up in the temple. I think that's part of why I love the church so much. Because I grew up there. I'm, I'm one of those church kids, you know, born on Saturday and in church on Sunday, and we were never late, and I would like to help my parents by taking up the offering, you know, which made me give it back. <laughs> and I loved being there. I slept through many a sermon, but I loved being there. It was just, it's what we did. But as I got older... As with many churched people, I began to question and rebel a bit and push against it, kick against the goads, as the Lord Jesus said to Paul, why do you do this? Tragically, I have seen the adverse effect of those who grow up with a churched mentality. Now you need to understand, I believe the best place for anybody to grow up is in the church. I believe that's what we need to do. That's, that's the foundation and the grounding we need. And anyone who has grown up without church tends to look at church people and say, Why? Why aren't you thrilled that you... I didn't get this. I didn't get it until I was an adult. But a lot of times church people, we just kind of get... We go through the motions. We get used to it. We grow accustomed to God's face. And that's what happened to Joash. Because at the end of his life... He himself fell into disrepair, just like the temple he, he restored. He fell into spiritual disrepair. He became influenced by others. And Joash, like all the kings before him, fell into idol worship. Again, as we've seen, 7 out of 20 kings of Judah can even be called good in the eyes of God. 19 of 19 kings in Israel were bad in the eyes of the Lord. And I just tell you this as we begin to get into 2 Kings 13, and you can turn there now. 2 Kings chapter 13. I tell you this, and I remind you of Jehu, or of Joash, of Joash to say, Christians, don't fall into disrepair. Don't allow yourselves to be influenced by anyone who might lead you to believe life can be found outside of the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you do when you sing words like we sang in the wonderful cross this morning. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. In other words, were I Bill Gates, were I the richest man in the world, I still don't have enough to give back to God what He has given to me. 
He says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. What do you do with that? You just sing it and skip along? Or does it stop you in your tracks to think, wait a minute. Yeah. That, that's true. It demands my life and my soul and my all. Not because God wants to be a harsh dictator. He's a loving dictator. Oh, he's a dictator. He is the great authority. He has every right to ask us to do anything. He doesn't. He says, have faith in me. Believe in me. But isn't it true, gang, that that he has a right to everything I am? To my very life and breath? That there is nothing that I call my own that doesn't belong to him? And how quickly we walk away from that thought and get busy making life for ourselves. I believe a true love of Jesus Christ demands our lives. It demands our souls. It demands our all. Now as we continue on this morning, we go back up to Israel, leaving Joash down in Judah. He's still going to be king there. And as we did on Wednesday, we're going to cover the brief stories of two more kings this morning, each having some valuable things to teach us if we're willing to listen. I decided for this morning, I actually sat down and said, I'm just going to teach through chapter 13. So let's just see what happens. So we're going to do that chapter this morning. So if you want to follow along, 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel at Samaria, Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. He did not turn from them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hatzael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hatzael. And then Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord. Now Jehoahaz, remember, king of Israel, Jehoahaz is a wicked king after the pattern of Jeroboam. But it tells us in verse 4, Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord. The Lord, not just being any god, Yahweh. And Yahweh listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Aram oppressed them. The Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Aramaeans, and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria. That's Asherah worship, the Asherah poles of worship. For he left to Jehoahaz of the army not more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Aram had destroyed them and made them, made them like dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And by the way, a little side note for you Bible students, you might want to just remember this after we do Matthew and come back to Chronicles. People will read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and say it's just a repeat of history. Understand this, First and Second Kings are the history of Israel and Judah. First and Second Chronicles are the history of Judah. So it's mainly just a focus on the kingdom of Judah. Going, you know, David, Solomon, and, and on through the line of the kings of Judah. And so we get more information there, and it's an interesting study, which again, we'll get to as soon as we get through this study, and then Matthew. 
what can we learn from this wicked king Jehoahaz? Verse 4 again. Pay attention to this. says, Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord and the Lord listened to him. If you want to jot some things down just for following along, you might want to write this down. The favor of God is always greater than the fallenness of man. The favor of God is always greater than the fallenness of man. And I love that about our Father. If a wicked king like Jehoahaz, whose life is in shambles, whose kingdom is falling apart, who's being attacked by this evil king from Aram, if he can turn around even in his wicked state and entreat the Lord, and God will respond, well, there's hope for any of us. Because the favor of God is always greater than the fallenness of man. Matthew 9.12, Jesus said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. He said, I didn't come to call sinners. No, I'm sorry. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. I came to call the sinners. Romans 5.6 tells us, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And Ephesians 2.4 says, God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we see this theme repeated again and again throughout the Bible. Even with these kings. And I remind you again, I know I say this a lot, but there are those who try and see a God of the Old Testament and a Jesus of the New as separate. Same God. Same heart. The Father heart of God is always bent toward grace, toward redemption, toward forgiveness. He is always just waiting for anybody to turn around and say, I believe you or forgive me, Lord. And so we see this King Jehoahaz doing that very thing. And reminding us that all a person must do to gain his favor is to give in to him. By the way, this word, entreated the favor of. Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord. Entreated the favor, literally it means to make weak. Jehoahaz made himself weak before the Lord. He gave in. He turned to the Lord and in essence said, I can't do this without you. I need you, Lord. I can't do it alone. To stop being the strong man, the strong, capable woman in your life, we have to give up the rebellious cry, I can do it. I got it covered. I can figure this one out. I can crunch the numbers. I can work the program. And the Lord just wants us to entreat Him, to be weak before Him. We've had several of our number become weak before Him, right, Kevin? Right, Janice? Praise God you both are here. But to become weak before the Lord. To lay down all of our capabilities is to entreat Him. He loves that and He saves us in that place. But this is the tragedy of human sin. You realize that it's not sin that keeps us from God? That may sound a little different. But it's not really sin that keeps us from God. It's the root of sin. I said this before. I don't believe sin is the issue. I believe the root of sin is the issue. Sin is the fruit of the root. Sin is the behavior. Sin is what we see. It's the result of the real problem, the root problem, which is rebellion. We know where to go. We just don't want to go there. We know what God expects. We just don't want to do it. 
And so we sin, and sin is the fruit, but rebellion is the root. Listen to this passage. Interesting. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 24, Paul is telling Timothy about how a servant should function in the church. And he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. And listen to verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This phrase, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, caught my eye this last week. Those who are in opposition literally means those who oppose themselves, which is what rebellion is. It is self-opposition. It is opposing the very thing I need for salvation. It's opposing the very thing I need to do to find myself whole and healthy and righteous before God. That's rebellion. I oppose the very thing that's good for me. We're like little children sitting at the counter and mom dishes up, you know, those strained peas in the little jar, the Gerber. But it's good for the child. And the child turns his head, you know, and mom's got the spoon trying to get it in, you know, and more of it's on the face. But did I ever tell you that when Corey was real little and he hates, he hates, he, I, I got to pay you for this one, son, okay? He hates when I tell the kids stories on him. But he was real little. It's not really anything that he did. He was sitting in his little seat in front of the TV. He's watching some, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was some computer show. I'm not really sure. But he's watching and show had been feeding him the strained peas. You know, and he'd been doing this and, and it was all over his face. And so she walked around. We had a little apartment at that time. She walked around into the kitchen. He could go in this way and, and back around this way. She walked into the kitchen, grabbed the wet towel, walked back out, and his face was completely clean. And our dog Chester was sitting there just licking his lips. <laughs> Opposing the very thing we need That is rebellion That's what sin is It's looking at the Lord and saying no No I don't need your Bible study I don't need to spend time with Christians I need that church stuff I can do it myself Opposing ourselves Listen if you are opposed to the will of God You're opposing the very thing that can release you From yourself and when it really gets down to it, I think we all would like some release from ourselves. I'm sure there's not a single one of us in here who hasn't at least had one moment in your life where you've looked at yourself in the mirror and said, Man, you can do better. <laughs> what is your problem? Why can't I just get this straight? And the issue is, at its heart, rebellion. It's Jehovah has. The whole reason why Hatzael, the king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son, the king of Aram, were, were coming down and attacking Israel was because they were in rebellion. They were opposing themselves. They were causing harm to themselves because they were rebelling against God and pushing Him away. In opposition to themselves. The one good thing King Jehoahaz did was recognize this. Turn to God in weakness and entreat His favor. And look at what the Lord did. Verse 5, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer. I love this. You know what the word deliverer there is in the Hebrew? Yesha. It is the root of Yeshua. The deliverer, Yesha. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. The moment we turn to Him in our weakness and say we can't do it, He sends Jesus, the deliverer, to us. 
verse 9 going on. And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash, his son, became king in his place. Now, this is where it gets confusing, because we just studied about Joash last week. Well, there's Joash in Judah, and at the same time now, there's a king Joash in Israel. Now, your Bibles may go back and forth. I believe the NIV talks about Judah's king as Joash and Israel's king as Jehoash. It's the same name. Spelled the same in the Hebrew. It's just they're trying to distinguish to help us who are a little bit slower in following along. But this is Joash the king of Israel, his son, a son of Jehoahaz, and he became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did evil, surprise, surprise, in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did with his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? What do you mean the rest of what he did? We didn't hear anything about what he did. It was pretty quick. He just followed after Jeroboam, same old, same old, and, and off we go. And then he was buried. He slept with his fathers, verse 13. And Jeroboam sat on his throne, not the original Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam II. After what Jeroboam did, isn't it amazing anyone would even name their son Jeroboam? But he sat on the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Not much here about the northern king Joash, except that he followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. But we do know one thing about Joash. We learn that he is a terrible, terrible archer. Look at verse 14. The rest of chapter 13 now will deal with a postscript of Joash. Verse 14, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash the king of Israel came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. You remember the last time that was spoken? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen was cried out by Elisha when Elijah stepped into that fiery chariot and was whisked off up to heaven. Caught up in glory. An amazing end to an amazing life. Elisha, now the student of Elijah, you tracking me? Elisha now comes to the end of his life. Elisha has a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He was twice as powerful. He was more gentle. He was more personal. He did more miracles. For my money, if you're looking, if you're just comparing what we know about the two men, it seems like Elisha deserves a fiery chariot. How does Elisha die? He gets sick. He dies of an illness. The powerful Elisha, the mighty miracle worker of God, the prophet with the double portion, gets sick and dies. Where's his chariot? And some today might ask, where's his faith? I mean, the Bible is clear about the fact that divine healing is both actual and available from the Lord. Is it not? Does the Bible not teach us that? Don't we pray for healing in this fellowship? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is the heartbeat of, of, of Pastor Les, not to mention the rest of us, but to see healing happen. To pray for people. And to call upon the Lord for His promises... By His stripes we are healed. And to desire that and to want that healing. The thing is, gang, the question is not whether or not God wants to heal. 
We know he does. The question is, how is he going to go about it? What's he going to do? You see, while I believe in divine healing, absolutely, I also reject the notion that death is a result of a lack of faith. No way. No way. Some will see a a believer in Christ die and say, why couldn't we change things? Why couldn't we believe better? Why couldn't Elisha, this great man of faith with the double portion, dies of a sickness? Why couldn't he pray himself healed of this? Because it was time for him to go. And the Lord's method for bringing Elisha home was an illness. As much as the Lord's method for bringing Elijah home was a chariot. Paul had an ailment he could not get healed of. The powerful Apostle Paul had a thorn in his side that he prayed would be removed and it never was. We see Paul telling young Timothy, young Pastor Tim, take a little wine for your stomach. That seems like a lack of faith. Pray, man. Pray for your stomach ailment to be healed. And Paul says, no, take a little wine for it. Why would he say that? Probably because it's just going to be with Timothy. Just got to deal with it, dude. Did they lack faith? John chapter 9 verse 1 tells us that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Who had the lack of faith that this guy would have the ailment of blindness? I love what Jesus said. We would do well to pay attention. John 9.3, he said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now this man was healed of his blindness by Jesus. But he was healed after a lifetime of blindness. This was not a child. This was a man who had spent his life stumbling in the dark, unable to see. And God made him wait for vision so that God would be glorified in the right time. Second thing to note, the faith of a believer is always given to the fame of the Lord. The faith of the believer, gang, is not in how we are healed. It's not in the things that happen to us. Our faith is for God's fame, however He wants to display it. However, He wants to show His glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8, He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And right now in Lakeland, Florida, there's a revival so-called going on with a man who's taking all kinds of fame for himself. And God says, I won't share that. I will not give my fame to another. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Not us. The faith of a believer is given to the fame of the Lord. Gang, we have seen and we will see people miraculously healed. We also have seen and will see others die in their faith. And my statement is simply this. May we do both to the glory of God. May we die to His glory. May we live to His glory. But whatever happens in our lives, may we trust that He is glorified. Now back to the poor archery of Joash. Verse 15. 
Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hands on it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window toward the east. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And as Joash now is shooting the arrow, Elisha said, The Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans in effect until you have destroyed them, or literally until you have made an end of them. So that's what's going on here. He's giving him a word picture. Shoot the arrow out of the window toward the east. That's toward Aram. And as that arrow's flying out there, Elisha says, You're going to defeat Aram. You're going to take them down. You're going to make an end of them. This is a great opportunity for faith. Elisha is saying, Joash, you can render Aram powerless. You can be the king over Israel who does good. You can be the righteous king. You can render this enemy powerless. You can make an end to them so that they can't bring any further threat against Israel. In spite of his idolatry, the Lord was giving Joash a shot. Literally, no pun intended. He was giving him an opportunity to be a king who steps into faith. Shoot the arrow, man, and go get him. What does he do? Verse 18. Then he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. Now that phrase, strike the ground, what it indicates is that he was to shoot the arrow at the ground. He took the arrows, shot at the ground, plink, plank, plunk, and he stopped. And the word stop means stood there. What now, Elisha? What do you want to do? Okay, now what? How many arrows did Elisha tell Joash to shoot? What does it say? Verse 18 says, take the arrows. So how many arrows do you think he told, told Joash to shoot? Three. All of them. All of them. He said, take the arrows. He didn't say shoot one arrow or two arrows or three arrows. He said, take the arrows. Fire away, man. Shoot all the arrows out. Well, Joash takes the arrows and fires off one. Fires off two. Fires off three. He's probably starting to feel a little embarrassed. Kind of silly exercise. Hey, it's one thing to shoot the arrow out the window. Yeah, victory, that direction. It's another thing to fire down to the floor. You know, hey, hey, Elisha, is there a point to this? Is there a reason we're doing this? As he shoots these arrows down, might be a bit embarrassing. Verse 19, the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck or shot five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it or made an end of it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. And Elisha died. And they buried him. Last words of Elisha right there. You should have shot more. And he dies. Corey and Hayden and I were making up famous last words the other day. You know, famous last things that people say right before they die. Things like this. I wonder what this button does. Good one. Or, or, hey guys, watch this. You know. Or, uh, are you sure those sharks can't get into this cage? That was Hayden's favorite one. Here's a good one for you golfers. Hurry up and putt. I hear thunder. 
or you husbands, didn't we celebrate Mother's Day last year? Famous last words. <laughs> Elisha's final words were a rebuke to Joash. Elisha looked at Joash and he said, you should have shot five or six times, then you would have struck down Aram. What does this mean? You have limited the power of God. Your lack of faith has put restrictions now on your deliverance. Now you're not going to wipe them out. Because you shot three times, you're going to have three victories, and that's it. And you will not wipe out Aram. Your lack of faith equals your lack of salvation. You see, the Lord through Elisha gave Joash an incredible opportunity to believe God for a total deliverance. To show a real faith. This was his moment. This could have been the defining moment moment of King Joash's entire life. We could this morning be drawing back to this and saying it was right here where he stepped up. It was right here where he showed real faith in God, where he took the arrows and just went bam, 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 bam. Yes, I trust you, Lord. I believe you for what you're going to do. But what does the Bible say he did? He shot three times and that word stopped at the end of verse 18 literally means stood there he did what he was told to do to a point and then he just stood there what a sad picture of traditional religion Joash's response is that of a churched person and what does he get for it? he's going to get partial victory just partial victory we'll see in just a moment why is that a picture of religion because it's far too many people who are apathetic and dispassionate when it comes to faith we lackadaisically shoot off two or three arrows just standing there I, I got baptized I declare faith in God and now I go to church when it's convenient and now I give when there's leftover and now I, you know, I, I do from time to time. Where I try to do the right thing. Plank, plank, plunk. And no wonder we stand around going, I wish I could have more faith. There's a key to developing faith, gang. What does the word say about spiritual archery? It says in Romans 12, 11, to be fervent in spirit. James 5.16, we know the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you're going to fire off arrows of faith, fire them off passionately. Regardless of what people may say, or how it may look, or even if you think it's a little silly, fire the arrows passionately. You want to have an increase in your faith? Look at David's passionate dance before the Lord. Look at Elijah's fervent prayer. How many times did Elijah pray for his rain? Seven times. In the birthing position. That is passion. Or Peter's sword-swinging zeal in the Garden of Gethsemane. He may have been way off course. But man, he was swinging for Jesus. And that's the kind of faith God can use. All Peter just needed was some redirection to the sword of the word. And he became a powerful man of God. And what about the thief's last minute faith on the cross? Do you think as he hung up there, he was embarrassed to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think maybe he thought some of his friends standing around might think, what a way to die. Talk about famous last words. Do you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He didn't care. 
his heart was finally to the Lord. And talk about passion. Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood. Jesus on the cross crying out, Forgive them! They don't know what they're doing. Fervency. Passion in faith. You ever just get bored of plinking arrows on the ground of a plain church, of doing the religious exercise? It is boring. The excitement and the fun comes when you begin to live in faith. Number three, jot this down. The fervency of a believer is grown in the firing of faith. The fervency of a believer is grown in the firing of faith. What I'm saying is this. If you want an increase in your faith, act in faith. God is not going to increase the, per- the faith of a person who is just sitting there. Lord, I just wish you could help me believe more. <laughs> Rick's going awfully long this morning, God. Fire your faith. Shoot the arrows. Not just one, not just two. You keep firing. And you fire with fervency. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in verse 6 it says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's why Elisha was upset with Joash. Because it wasn't the shooting of the arrows, it was the attitude of the heart. Plank, plank, plunk. What? What do you want me to do? This is weird. I'm shooting arrows. What's the big deal? He had no passion for what the man of God was doing. You want to grow up in your faith. You want to deepen your faith. You got to take a shot. You got to act in it. And as if to underline the power that was available to Joash by faith, we get a two verse epilogue of the life of Elijah. I, I love this. In verse 20, it says Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band. And they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Resurrection. Whoa. That is awesome. Can you imagine that funeral? See you later. Boom. I'm back. Whoa! Incredible power in the bones of Elisha. We thought Elijah was powerful, but come on. Just the man's bones bring about an immediate resurrection. Listen to this. Though Elisha died of a physical illness, the power of God was not stopped for Israel. Let me tell you something. A question was asked recently, what happens to the bridge if something happens to Pastor Rick? You know what my answer is to that? I think you do. The power of God is still available for the bridge. It has nothing to do with an individual. If the Lord saw fit to take me home today... then my hope and prayer is that this fellowship would step up in faith and just trust the Lord to continue doing what He's doing. Because the power of the Lord is what made Elisha great, not Elisha. The power of the Lord, and we see this because Elisha's a dead man. He doesn't do anything here but lie there and stink. That's it. That's all he's capable of at this point. But there was so much power there that when this guy who had died, when he touches these bones, boom. That power was available to Joash. That power was offered to him with Elisha's dying breath and Joash just went plink, 
playing plus. No faith. He was a lousy archer. Nearly five years ago, a group of people gathered around a vision here to be in the Word, to stand with Jesus, to be a light in a dark place, to keep it simple. Not to get all hung up on all kinds of other things, but just, man, just to walk in the Lord. In fact, if you go back, Genesis chapter 8 was the first sermon that I did on a Sunday morning, January 11, 2004. First time we were in this barn. Still smelled strongly of hay. In fact, we still had hay all along this side wall. There's a wall there. And I preached from over there. And the kids sat up on the hay that was stacked in the back, and the rats ran underneath it. Most people didn't know that at the time. But before we even started, we opened our Bibles to this verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's it. People want to know, what's the vision of the British Christian Fellowship? That's it. But it's not just the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Notice what it said before that, continually devoting themselves. Is it possible to be a church that does not die in lackadaisical boredom, but increases in passion? Yes, it's possible. How do you do it? By continually devoting yourself. By having the kind of passion that Elisha called on Joash to have when he fired those arrows. Man, fire them! Shoot them into the wall. Shoot them into the ceiling. It doesn't matter where you're aiming. Just fire away, man. Trust the Lord. That was the mentality of the early church, by the way. Constantly devoted. That verse is describing what they did. They were continually devoted to the Word. Continually devoted to prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread. Are we willing to be that devoted? Are we willing to empty the quiver of our arrows of faith? To shoot off every last one? Or are we leaving a few in the quiver going, Well, this is silly. It's kind of ridiculous. Are we saying, Lord... What do you want to do next? Verse 22. Now, Hatzael, the king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love how that's mentioned. He has not yet forgotten, nor will he ever forget his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why would you mention Alfred Dreyfus? Why talk about Theodore Herzl? Because God has not forgotten his covenant with the Jewish people. And that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the way, was pre-law. Bet you didn't know God was pre-law. He functioned pre-law. He made an unconditional promise to the people of Israel before he gave them the law. And so he remembers that promise. That he would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now, verse 23. Then verse 24 says, When Hatzael king of Aram died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. And there are several Ben-Hadads in Syria. I think it's probably more of a title than it is a name. But verse 25 says, Then Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hatzael, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz's father. Watch this three times. Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. How many arrows did he shoot? Three. How many times did he defeat Ben-Hadad? Three. 
It's interesting to me. Because the Lord is willing to take us just as far as we're willing to go and not one step further. He'll take us as far as we are willing to step out in faith. But He's not going to push us beyond that. He'll cheer you on. He'll say, come on, you can do it. Take another step. But He's not going to push you until you fall down. He'll take us as far as we're willing to go. How many arrows do you have in your quiver? Some of you might be like Jehoahaz this morning. You're weak and you're like, I might have one left. Fire it. Fire it and trust the Lord. Some have a quiver full, just waiting to see what God's going to do next. How is He going to act and work in my life? I have no idea. Start firing arrows. Start grabbing hold of the opportunities God puts before you. Fire away in faith. What kind of archer are you? Because the faith that's talked about in Scripture is one unto total victory, not just a few. Not just victory over drugs and alcohol, or, or, or victory over lust, or victory over some other sin struggle. You know, back when I was a younger kid, yeah, I had three victories, and that's all. That was good enough for me. It's total victory that the Lord has called us to. It was total victory that Elisha offered Jehoash. Jehoash. He said, the Lord's arrow of victory is that arrow shot off out the window. Total victory. You can completely defeat Aram so that they never threaten Israel again. Total victory. Psalm 47, verse 1 says, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of partial victory. Shout to God with the voice of... Well, we'll get through today. The Bible says, Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Complete victory. 1 John 5, 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. By the way, in Elisha's day, they buried people in much the same way they did in Jesus' day. Israel's different than America. In America we have wood, so we build houses, and we build wooden coffins. And in Israel they have stone. So they build the houses out of stone, and they hew the tombs out of rock. And they use the caves. And the people are buried in those caves. And Elisha's body wasn't lying in an open hole in the ground. I've, I've always wondered about this story because these guys are running along. They've got the body of their, of their dead friend. They're, they're going to, to a funeral. They're going to bury him. And they see coming over the horizon a marauding band of Moabites. And these guys, what the Moabites would do is they would just come into Israel and they would kill as many people as they could and then they'd disappear again. Well, here they come. We don't have any time for a funeral. What are we going to do? They didn't just look around and find an open grave of Elisha and toss the body in there. They found the closest cave. And they took the body quickly. They rolled back the stone and they pushed the body in there. And all of a sudden, after pushing it in there, that body hits the bones of Elisha. And as we read, pops back to life. Resurrection. It's a picture of Jesus' resurrection. In the cave. Placed into the cave, his dead body, but came back to life. And rose to a resurrection. It is also a picture game of His promised return. That we, when we touch Jesus, when we come in contact with Jesus, we are resurrected. Spiritually now, physically later. Just as we see in the story of Elisha. But think about this. This is so cool to me. Elisha had Joash fire an arrow out the window in what direction? 
to the east. You know what the Bible says about the resurrected Jesus? He's coming from the east. He is coming from the east. Matthew 24, 27, he says, Just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Zechariah 14, 4 tells us, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north, the other half will move toward the south. And the Bible tells us that the resurrected, the risen Messiah, King Jesus, will then enter in through the eastern gate. He comes from the east. So fire your arrows of faith in the direction of the east. Fire to the east. What do you mean, Rick? Send your faith in the direction of His coming. Let everything you do be done with that in mind. He is coming back, and I'm walking that direction. I'm headed east. While the world would say, go west, young man, I say, no, I'm going east. I am shooting my faith in the direction of the coming of Jesus. I am staking everything I have and all that I am on the return of Jesus Christ in glory. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I desire. Fire your faith to the east. We know Jesus is coming back. So fire away with the expectation of resurrection for both yourself and for other people. The favor of God, gang, is always greater than the fallenness of man. Remember that. The faith of a believer is always given to the fame of the Lord. The fervency of a believer is grown in the firing of faith. So fire to the east. I talked recently about the return of Jesus. And a young man came up to me after the teaching. He said... Really, what's all this focus on Jesus coming do for you? He said, I, I think we really need to spend more of our focus on the world now and on the needs around us. And it just seems to me, and I've heard this old phrase, he didn't say this phrase, but what I heard in his words were, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I have said in response to that in the past, hey, to be of any earthly good, you've got to be heavenly minded. To me, the greatest motivation that I have as a believer in Jesus Christ, the absolute tops in terms of, of compelling me to service, is the coming of Jesus. It is His imminent return. John says, He who, who thinks about this, focuses on His coming, you purify yourself. Because you live every moment in that expectation that He's coming back. It compels me to evangelism, to share about Jesus, and I fire to the east. It compels me to love my brothers and sisters of Christ as I fire to the east. It compels me to study and, and know His Word and his, his declaration of His return as I fire to the east. And we keep firing those arrows of faith and trusting Him. What does all the focus on the coming of Christ really do for your faith? Everything. Everything. Because Jesus is truly what it's all about. He's coming from the east. So fire away. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. For the wonderful declaration of truth. Father, truly, we look at the books of the kings and it's uncomfortable for us because we are so like them. We have such a tendency, even in our moments of greatness, to fall back into idolatry, 
and a lack of faith and religiosity and all these things, Lord, that just they don't show a heart of true belief. This morning, Father, we just want to declare to You that You are more important than anything in our lives. Than anything we can possibly accomplish or do in this earth. Father, it is my prayer, it's my fervent prayer this morning over this fellowship that we would be a people who are investing ourselves in all ways eternal. That the arrows we're firing have nothing to do with, as Paul put it, wood, hay, and straw, but instead would have to do with the more eternal things of precious stones and silver and gold. In other words, Father, the things that remain and matter. Father, we pray that you will teach us to walk in fervent faith. That we will be a people who love fervently and live fervently. And like Elisha, if it happens before you come, may we be a people who die fervently. But Lord, I pray you come before that happens. As we look to the east. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.